0: The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored by Anchorlight. For more information about their programs and residencies, please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. Just a brief note that today's episode contains sensitive content involving drug addiction and pregnancy loss, so please take care when listening if you are sensitive to this content. Rescuing someone from their reputation, whether it be good or bad, isn't always an easy task. Just ask anyone who's ever been publicly shamed, or either online or in person. But especially when someone has been portrayed in a certain way over and over for a number of years, it's hard to escape our idea of that person. And when someone has been shown or decreed to be a certain way for the better part of 150 years, that's a big ask. But I think now is as good a time as ever to celebrate an incredible model, muse, and an artist in her own right, a woman who starred in some of the most incredible paintings of the late 19th century. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs Are weirder, more outrageous, or more fun than you can imagine. In Season 11, we are highlighting the lives and work of the women who supported some of the world's favorite artists. Today, we are getting to know Elizabeth Siddle, 19th-century muse and model, and poet and artist. This is the Art Curious Podcast. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I am Jennifer Dassel. Elizabeth Eleanor Siddle, known as Lizzie, was born on July 25, 1829, the third child of Charles Crook Siddle and Elizabeth Eleanor Evans. At the time of her birth, the Siddle family owned a cutlery-making business in Camden, abutting London. And when Lizzie was about two years old, the family relocated to South London. And it's there that the family settled and where Lizzie's other siblings were born. About eight kids in total. Not terribly much is known about Lizzie's childhood other than she had, in the words of her future brother-in-law, William Michael Rossetti, quote, an ordinary education conformable to her condition in life. Friends characterized her as quiet and reserved, conditions that were made much more extreme by the fact that she suffered from chronic illnesses that kept her inside for long periods of time. There are no records of her having attended school, so it's probable that she was educated at home by her parents. And there's a wonderful little anecdote about her falling in love with poetry when she first discovered a work by Alfred Lord Tennyson wrapped around a stick of butter. Can you imagine a piece of paper wrapped around a stick of butter that was a Tennyson poem? It was a formative moment for young Lizzie, and it would inspire her to write her own verses. Speaking of formative moments, a major one occurred when Elizabeth Siddle was about 20 years old. At that time, in 1849, she was working at the shop of a Mrs. Tozer, who was a dressmaker and a milliner or a hatmaker. Though accounts differ as to what exactly happened, the outcome was the same. Sometime in that year, Siddle made the acquaintance of Walter Deverell, who was an American-born British painter loosely collected with a group who would eventually come to define much of the 19th century in British art, the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. Now, side note. I know, we are almost to episode 100 of Art Curious, and we're just now getting to the pre-Raphaelites. But hey, what can I say? Art history is vast. And even now, I'm only just barely scratching the surface. But that just means that we have so many more great stories to tell ahead of us. Though many people would later accept tenets of the group's mission, the actual so-called brotherhood only originally began with three members, William Holman Hunt, John Everett Millet and Dante Gabriel Rossetti, before expanding to include six artists and one writer, all males. By the way, it truly seems like you couldn't be a pre-Raphaelite without identifying yourself by all three of your names. Essentially, the Brotherhood was a rebel group, kind of like the Impressionists would be in the latter part of the century, a group who fought against the traditions being extolled at the Royal Academy of Art, founded and ran, at the time, by the great portraitist Sir Joshua Reynolds. The Pre-Raphaelites found academic art stodgy and muddy, and they kind of sassily referred to Joshua Reynolds by the nickname of Sir Sloshula. Most importantly, though, the Pre-Raphaelites loved what they viewed as the richness of early Italian Renaissance art. So art from the 15th century, full of complexity, glorious colors, incredible details. In contrast, the Academy favored the classical design expressed through beauty and harmony, and to academicians, that meant that the artist Raphael was like God, the epitome of Renaissance greatness. Not a bad thing, of course, and no disrespect on my part to Raphael, but the pre-Raphaelites just didn't really like him. He wasn't devoted enough to realism, to brightness, and thus, they wanted to emulate the artwork from the period before Raphael painted. Hence their name, the Pre-Raphaelites. While not one of the original members of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, Walter Deverell was nevertheless inspired by their philosophy and style. While we are not entirely sure how they first met, we do know that Elizabeth Siddle caught Deverell's eye. He later described her as, quote, with a lovely figure and a face of the most delicate and finished modeling. She had gray eyes, and her hair is like dazzling copper and shimmers with luster. Descriptions of Siddle are really interesting to read, because while many admirers have described her beauty, or at least her allure, others are equally dismissive of her as plain or even unattractive. That flowing red hair for which she was so recognized was, I think, especially at issue. Red hair during this period in history wasn't altogether loved. It was often considered to be a denotation of a fiery personality or even overt eroticism, which was a problem in stolid Victorian England, to be sure. But what we do know is that people weren't indifferent to Siddle's appearance. And thus, it is not terribly surprising to learn that Walter Deverell asked Siddle to model for one of his paintings. Coming up next, Lizzie Siddle has her first modeling job. And we are going to get into all the details right after these quick messages. Remember that by supporting our advertisers, you keep us going. So thank you for listening. I require a few things to get myself started in the morning. I need a little bit of quiet time to myself, a nice hot cup of coffee, and a shot of Magic Mind. But okay, so what is Magic Mind, you ask? It is this little elixir that's designed to provide sustainable energy and focus, but it doesn't have the jitters and crashes that you might expect after you have one too many cups of coffee. I drink one small shot of this productivity drink that's filled with brain-boosting ingredients, and it leaves me feeling clear-headed and ready to hustle. Magic Mind contains 12 functional ingredients, including matcha, which is one of my favorites, alongside nootropics that can help you focus, and adaptogens that help you ward off stress. Magic Mind was created by James Bashara, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur who has transformed this little shot into the Valley's must-have morning elixir. And I get the hype because I feel better when I start my day with Magic Mind. If you're a creator like me and you need that little extra productivity and focus and you're looking for an easier way to get into that flow state, you should try Magic Mind. And you've got nothing to lose. With their money-back guarantee, any first purchase will be refunded, no questions asked, if it doesn't meet your expectations. So try it today. Go to magicmind.co slash artcurious and use discount code artcurious to get 20% off today. Magic Mind is your best choice when it comes to getting more done in less time through your once-daily magic elixir. Go to magicmind.co slash artcurious and use code artcurious at checkout to get 20% off your first purchase. What's a game where no one wins? The waiting game. And when it comes to hiring, don't wait for great talent to find you. You should find them first with Indeed. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Find great talent fast through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed data. Can we just talk about how great Instant Match is, by the way? Candidates you invite to apply through Instant Match are three times more likely to apply to your job than candidates who only see it in the search. And with Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor your post, you get a quality shortlist of candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description, and then you can invite them to apply right away. How cool is that? It's like Indeed does the hard work for you. Indeed is a powerful hiring partner, delivering four times more hires than any other job site combined, according to Talent Nest. So join more than 3 million businesses worldwide who use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to update your job post at Indeed.com dot com slash art offer good for a limited time claim your 75 dollars credit now at indeed.com slash art indeed.com slash art terms and conditions apply pay per qualified applicant not available for all users need to hire you need indeed Ah, mm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after, rare, and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Welcome back to Our Curious. The first painting that Lizzie Sittle sat for as a model is Deverell's 1850 work, Twelfth Night, Act 2, scene 4, from the Shakespeare play, and act and scene of the same name. Lizzie modeled for the character of Viola, who disguises herself in male garb to garner a position as a page to the Duke Orsino, represented in the painting by Deverell himself. Nearby sits a court jester who is identified in the original play as Feste. And the model for that role was Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Deveril's good friend and one of the OG members of the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood. And that's another momentous point in Elizabeth Siddle's life—her meeting with the man who would become her husband. I admit that I have mixed feelings about discussing the relationship between Siddle and Rossetti because they can be spun as one of those great love stories of the 19th century. But it also wasn't the best partnership. And most importantly for our story today— It had some very negative effects on both Lizzie Siddle's life and on her legacy. But it must be addressed either way. It was through the connection to Deverell that Siddle and Rossetti were connected, as it was with many of the pre-Raphaelites. Siddle would eventually model for works by William Holman Hunt and John Everett Millay, as well as acting as one of the primary models for Rossetti. And, if you've seen one of the most famous English paintings of the 19th century, then you have already seen Lizzie Siddle. There she is, as the tragic, soon-to-be-drowned Ophelia in Millais' iconic 1852 painting of the doomed Hamlet heroine. As Ophelia, we see Siddle floating on her back in a verdant pond, her eyes languid and heavy, her hands outstretched and open, with her right hand gently clutching a garland of wildflowers. Siddle's signature redlocks flow around her, but are barely visible in the dark waters below her. She is gorgeous. The painting is gorgeous, so lifelike that it's been said that botanists can identify the specific flora that Malay represented here. But the tale of Siddle's involvement in this image is almost as legendary as the work itself, which is now located at Tate Britain. As the story goes, Millet asked Siddle to float, fully dressed, in a bathtub full of water. Painted in London's icy wintertime, Millet placed several oil lamps underneath the tub to keep it warm for Siddle's comfort during each of her modeling sessions. But the bath water ultimately went cold, as baths are wont to do. And yet Siddle, dedicated to her job, didn't complain. And as a result, when the oil lamps extinguished one day, Malay didn't notice and Siddle didn't say anything, and she caught either pneumonia or a severe respiratory condition afterward. Now, this greatly angered Siddle's father, who blamed Malay for his daughter's illness and sent her medical bills to Malay, who eventually did shell out some money for the payment. That Malay's painting is so successful is owed then in no small part to Elizabeth Siddle's gameness. At the same time, though, This single work of art has had a major impact on Siddle's story, imbuing its mystique onto Siddle herself. That story about Siddle falling ill yet powering through allows us to see her as a sufferer who bravely sacrifices her own health for the sake of art with a capital A. And after Siddle's death, it allowed us to romanticize her even further. But more on that in a moment. Around the same time as Lizzie Siddle posed for Millais' Ophelia, she began posing for Dante Gabriel Rossetti, a full two years after the pair met at Deveril's studio. Not terribly long after, Rossetti inserts himself into Siddle's life as the central figure in her world, not only forbidding her to model for the other Pre Raphaelites, but also claiming her as his lover, personal muse, and even his student. In 1852, Siddle ceased working at Mrs. Tozer's millinery, and by November of that year, she had fully dedicated herself to Rossetti. Still, this period is yet another turning point for Siddle because she began to experiment with her own art-making. This was a huge moment for her, especially because the mid-19th century, so the height of the Victorian era, wasn't the most receptive to female students who were not yet accepted to the Royal Academy of Arts or other institutions of learning. In comparison, the pre-Raphaelites were an accepting bunch, allowing the women in their circle to not only make art themselves, but to help shape and perpetuate the movement. And not just Elizabeth Siddle, but also Joanna Mary Wells, Emma Sandys, and Marie Spartali Stillman, just to name a few. From Rossetti, Siddle learned the basics of drawing and design before leading up to watercolor and even a little bit of oil painting, oftentimes showcasing the same themes and ideals as Rossetti and the other pre-Raphaelites. Literary references, taking inspiration from Arthurian legend, and poems as diverse as the works of Alfred Lord Tennyson, Robert Browning, and ancient Scottish ballads that extolled the virtues of love, fidelity, honor, and devotion. Though we can see Rossetti's influence on Siddle's works, it is not without her own special touch. Elizabeth Siddle was an artist, learning her trade and getting comfortable with her talent. Nearly three years after she first began her artistic studies, she had improved enough in technique to garner her first patron, the famed art critic John Ruskin, who found her work so intriguing that he subsidized her career with a payment of £150 a year, or the equivalent of about £12,000 today, a fee for which Lizzie was to turn over all of the paintings or drawings that she produced. A patron, a real patron. Truly, Elizabeth Siddle must have been thrilled, but so too must have been Rossetti, who wrote of the deal in a letter to the Irish poet William Ullingham, saying, quote, about a week ago, Ruskin saw and bought on the spot every scrap of designs hitherto produced by Miss Siddle. He declared that they were far better than mine or almost anyone's and seemed quite wild with delight at them. Rossetti must have also been wild with delight at the thought of the money that Ruskin provided, as he often struggled to make ends meet. Like most art critics, Ruskin had a lot of ideas about what Siddle should and should not do. Most of it had less to do with the ways to improve her artwork and extended instead to his assumptions about her health. After meeting her for the first time, Ruskin proclaimed that Siddle must have been awfully ill, perhaps even at death's door. And in his surviving letters to her, Rossetti, and even a physician friend named Harry Ackland, they are all full of concern for poor Siddle, whom he nicknamed Ida. He chastises her for her interest in, quote, ghostly connections, preferring instead that she, quote, be bade to draw in a dull way sometimes from dull things. Ultimately, Ruskin didn't want her to upset herself and her spirit too much, and he urged her to get away, to take the air somewhere fresh, so perhaps going to the south of France, perhaps to Hastings on England's southern coast. And one can be sure that Lizzie Siddle grew tired of his pestering. Still, She carried on, not only engaging in her own drawings and paintings, but writing poetry as well, producing over 100 creative works. By 1857, she was feeling confident enough, and her works were admired enough by her fellow artists, that she was the only female artist featured in the pre-Raphaelite exhibition that summer. But Ruskin wasn't wrong in worrying about Lizzie Siddle's health it appears to have been a frequent topic of conversation. Barbara Lee Smith, a fellow Pre-Raphaelite artist, wrote of her, quote, she is a genius and will, if she lives, be a great artist. Her health and lack thereof became an easy excuse for Rossetti to continue putting off a permanent commitment to Siddle, saying that he didn't think that she was well enough to get married, nor did they have enough money to do so. Now, what exactly Elizabeth Siddle suffered from has been a matter of conjecture, but historians have bandied about everything from tuberculosis to an intestinal disorder to neuralgia or even anorexia. What is known for sure is that she became dependent on laudanum, an opium based tincture that left her weak and thin. Whether or not Siddle's addiction to laudanum worsened with her relationship to Rossetti is another element of conjecture, but His affairs didn't seem to help the situation. When Siddle left for London for an extended rest from late 1855 through spring 1856, Rossetti was forced to find other models for his paintings. And it is interesting to note that he went for the opposite of Elizabeth Siddle. Whereas she had grown feeble and ragged, Rossetti was drawn to models who were more robust, fuller, and rather sensual. Models like Fanny Cornforth and Annie Miller came into his life, and according to some sources, Rossetti and Miller did have an affair, which was scandalous among the pre-Raphaelites, as Miller was previously romantically tied to William Holman Hunt. The whole situation just wasn't great, and when Siddle learned of the affair, she was furious and heartbroken. But she eventually reconciled with Rossetti later that year, and the two remained close, if somewhat strained. The rest of Elizabeth Siddle's story, including her legacy, is coming up right after this break. So come right back. I begin my day every day with a cup of wonderful coffee. But actually, I need to back it up further because I take AG1 by Athletic Greens every morning before my first cup of coffee. Longtime listeners know that my health is important to me and I do what I can to optimize my health and energy. But traditional vitamins, in pill form, are no fun and they kind of bore me. I wanted something that tasted good and kept me going. So what is AG1? With one delicious scoop of AG1 from Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports everything from your gut health to your nervous system, your energy, focus, aging, and recovery all the things. It is great, and now my family keeps asking if they can have their own serving of AG1 in the morning. Athletic Greens is the one thing with all the best things. It uses the best of the best products based on the latest science, with constant product iterations and third-party testing. Athletic Greens was created when the founder experienced a ton of gut health issues and ended up on a complicated supplement routine to recover, and it cost him over $100 a day. So he created Athletic Greens after experiencing how difficult it was to have an optimal nutrition routine all on your own. But you don't have to take my word for it, you can take the opinions of others. Because Athletic Greens has over 7,000 five-star reviews. It is time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. it is just one scoop in a cup of water every day. And that is it. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com artcurious. Again, that is athleticgreens.com artcurious to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Bombus's mission is simple. Make the most comfortable clothes ever and match every item sold with an equal item donated. So when you buy Bombus, you are also giving to someone in need. Bombus designed their socks, shirts, and underwear to be the clothes you can't wait to put on every day. Everything they make is soft, seamless, tagless, and has a luxuriously cozy feel. They're made from amazing materials like merino wool, pima cotton, and cashmere, which makes them the perfect cozy layers. And there's a pair of Bombas socks for everything you do. They come in tons of options, like comfy performance styles for every sport and activity. And when I'm going on a run, I wear their socks that are specifically made for runners. And then when I'm relaxing at home, my favorite is their merino wool socks. They are so soft and also just beautifully designed. And Bombas isn't just socks. They have T-shirts with thoughtful design features like invisible seams and tagless options. And Bombus underwear has a barely there feel with sex skin support that might actually make you forget that they're even there in a good way. And did you know that socks, underwear, and T-shirts are the three most requested clothing items at homeless shelters? That's why Bombas donates one for every item you buy. Go to bombas.com slash artcurious and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash artcurious for 20% off. Bombas.com slash artcurious. Ladies and gentlemen. What are you doing? What do you mean? I'm just it keep ar- it simple. Uh, I'm making the promo. Just keep it simple. Just say, hey, we're the Bravo Bros. Two guys that talk about Bravo. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're the Bravo Bros. No. Oh. Dude, stop with the voice. Just the vo- keep it simple. I've seen promos on TV, dude. This is how you get the fans engaged. This is how you get listeners. We're trying to get listeners here. If we just say, oh, we're two dudes that talk about Bravo, people are going to get tired of it already. We need some oomph. All right, then fine. Let's try to do it with your voice. Bravo, bros. Good job. Welcome back to Art Curious. Not a whole lot has been confirmed of Elizabeth Siddle's experiences between 1858 and 1860. We do know from Rossetti's letters that Lizzie had spells of worsening health and then slow improvement until, in mid-1860, everyone from Rossetti to Siddle's family became convinced again that she was on death's door. Listless, she vomited practically every day, and Rossetti decided that they were at a tipping point. It was now or never. So, either because of her illness or perhaps despite it, Rossetti finally agreed to marry Elizabeth Siddle on May 23, 1860. They married in Hastings with no family present, only two strangers as witnesses. And apparently, Siddle was so ill that she couldn't manage the five minute walk to the church and had to be carried. the altar. After an expensive honeymoon in France, Elizabeth Siddle, whose last name up to this point had been spelled with two L's, upon her marriage to Rossetti, he dropped the final L, which is a really curious idea. So after that honeymoon, Siddle seems to have recovered a bit under Rossetti's care and with the satisfaction of finally being married. But alas, the happier times were not to last. 1861, Siddle discovered that she was pregnant, but later that year, she delivered a stillborn daughter. She was devastated, rightfully so, and she fell into a deep depression, relying even more heavily on laudanum to just make it through the days. Though she supposedly became pregnant again around the end of the year, that pregnancy never came to fruition either. On the evening of February 10th, 1860, Siddle and Rossetti enjoyed a dinner out with their friend, the poet and critic Algernon Charles Swinburne, after which Siddle retired at home and Rossetti headed out to attend a lecture. But when he returned later that evening, Rossetti found Siddle unresponsive. Though several doctors attended to her at her bedside, none of them were able to revive her, and she was pronounced dead on the morning of February 11, 1862. She was 32 years old. Many historians assume that her death was accidental, caused probably by an overdose of laudanum. But of course, there have been stories that deem it a suicide, with Rossetti supposedly finding a suicide note and then burning it on the advice of Ford Maddox Brown to avoid scandal and shame, since suicide was not only considered immoral, but was also illegal at this time. But this is all hearsay. So ultimately, there's no evidence to suggest whether or not she chose to end her life. Siddle's early death, as well as her chronic illnesses, her pregnancy loss, and her suffering due to Rossetti's infidelities, all color our views of Elizabeth Siddle's life and works. And much of this sad characterization came about in the writings that proliferated after her death. It's so hard for us not to envision Siddle as Ophelia lying there just awaiting death or being accidentally consumed by it. But it's curious to note that that oft-told tale of Siddle catching cold in Malay's bathtub and suffering for artistic greatness wasn't actually published until after Malay's own death in 1896. Other popular descriptions persisted, though. The poet William Allingham mulled over her loss in a diary entry, writing, quote, Short, sad, and strange her life. It must have seemed to her like a troubled dream. That Siddle's life and death were mainly detailed by men in the decades after her death plays an interesting role here, because they all reframe her story so that it reflects less on her and more on others, especially Dante Gabriel Rossetti. She's extolled as the anguished model of a brilliant painter, an inspiration for both his creation and his love. Her greatness is then revealed only in conjunction with Rossetti's, and he is viewed as the hero in her own life. Rossetti certainly didn't help Siddle's life story from morphing into that of a tragic Gothic romance. After Sittle's death, things went south for the widower. Consumed by grief, he kept Sittle's coffin in their home for six days before finally consenting to her burial on February 17th. Before the coffin was sealed, her husband laid two books next to her cheek, nestled into her copper hair. Lizzie's Bible, and Rossetti's own manuscript of poems, after which he melodramatically announced to his friends, quote, I have often been writing at these poems when Lizzie was ill and suffering, and I might have been attending to her, and now they shall go. After that point, the story of Siddle and Rossetti distorts into something akin to a Victorian ghost story. For two years after her death, Rossetti claimed to see her ghost, with Siddle haunting him and he attempting to reach her from beyond the veil through seances and table tappings. To be fair, it does appear that Rossetti, especially in the latter part of his life, did suffer from mental health issues. But friends and associates, and perhaps even Rossetti himself, ascribed his torment directly to Siddle's passing. Whether or not it is singularly responsible for his ailments. But it's not like Rossetti just sat around being haunted after Siddle's death. He despaired, of course, naturally, but he also continued to paint and write poetry, and he had several love affairs, including those with models Fanny Cornforth and Jane Morris. <laughs> In 1869, seven years after Elizabeth Siddle's death, Dante Gabriel Rossetti made an interesting decision. His eyesight had begun to worsen, which made painting a miserable experience. So he returned to writing more poetry, which, as for Siddle, was one of his first loves. But though he had written several verses, he felt that he did not have enough writing to warrant publishing a whole volume of poetry. And then? he remembered that little manuscript that he buried with his wife. Hmm, he must have thought, and you might be seeing where this is going. So it is thus that in September 1869, Rossetti received permission to have Siddle's body exhumed. On October 5th, gravediggers were able to rescue the remains of the manuscript, which Rossetti lamented as being in a, quote, disappointing but not hopeless state. Still, the job was done. Rossetti supplemented his works with poems from the molded, worm-eaten manuscript. It is true, it was both moldy and worm-eaten. And then Siddle was returned to her grave. Rossetti wasn't present for the exhumation, by the way. It was kind of just a simple transaction to further his writing career. That Elizabeth Siddle's life and works have been overshadowed by her death isn't a surprise. After all, think of how much has been written about the tortured lives of Sylvia Plath and Virginia Woolf, among many other creative women whose deaths came early and at their own hands. But where Siddle differs from Plath and Woolf, just as examples, is that Siddle didn't document her own life prolifically. So few letters of hers survive. And remember that there are huge periods where we just don't really know what was happening in her life, like in that two-year gap from 1858 until about 1860. So we have long understood her history only in how others have perceived her. Thankfully, the tide has begun to change for Lizzie Siddle, and we are now the inheritors of a new story. More attention has been paid to her works on view at the Ashmolean at Oxford University, for example. And in 2018, an exhibition called, of course, Beyond Ophelia opened up at the Whitewick Manor in Wolverhampton, England, which featured 12 works owned by the National Trust. This show was dedicated entirely to the works of Lizzie Siddle and was only the second show in history supposedly dedicated to this artist. Her poetry is receiving more acclaim, too. So finally, the world is coming around to understanding and celebrating Elizabeth Siddle in her own right. Not just for her beauty and as a muse, but as an important and influential creator herself. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Huge thanks to Mary Beth Soya for her awesome research for this episode, and for nearly every episode this season. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at AlexDavisMusic.com, and our logo is by Dave Rainey at DaveRaineyDesign.com. Our podcast is co-produced by Kabunki podcasts, creative video, and more. Subscribe to their show, Subgenre, a podcast about the movies, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at subgenrepodcast.com. Kabunki, leave your mark. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by AnchorLite. Anchorlight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. To find out how to donate to our show and for more details about all we do, please visit ArtCuriousPodcast.com or follow us on social media at ArtCuriousPod. Check back with us soon as we explore the lives and works of more fascinating women behind the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history.